This episode is sponsored by JetBrains. JetBrains has just released the new RubyMine 2017.3. This update completes the year's work on the native RuboCop support. It will highlight your files on the fly and let you autocorrect offenses of any scope from the editor with only a couple of keystrokes. If you employ the extract method refactoring, you already know that RubyMine can automatically parameterize and extract the selected code into the new method generated under the private section of the class. RubyMine is praised for his ability to properly analyze Rails code bases and even go to GEMS classes and methods right from their usages. Get a 30-day free trial at jetbrains.com ruby and jump to the What's New section for all the other cutting-edge additions like WSL support. Once again, that's jetbrains.com ruby. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everybody. David Richards. Hello. Eric Berry. Hey. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And because we don't have enough Daves on the show today, we also have uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen, DHH. How's it going, David? Good, good. Hey, everyone. Now, for most people in the Ruby community, you need no introduction. But, you know, you're the creative Ruby on Rails. You and Jason started a new podcast, the Rework Podcast. Um, anything else going on that you want to talk about before we jump in and start asking you a whole bunch of silly questions? Uh, those are probably a good uh, fit. We're also writing a new book right now that's uh, due out next year called The Comp Company. So I have a lot of opinions about uh, work uh, methods and approaches and habits. So if there's questions about that, I'm always happy to dive into that topic. Awesome. Well, we, we mentioned this before we kind of kicked the show off, but we, we kind of put together a bunch of questions. I also posted to Twitter to see what people wanted us to ask, and uh, I haven't even looked to see what people are uh, putting in there. But anyway, on our list of questions, we, we have about five questions about front-end stuff. And so uh, I'll just start with the one that we, we all decided was most popular, and then we'll kind of work from there. And that is in, in uh, talking about Rails and things like that, you've uh, taken a position on JavaScript ES6+. Plus. Um, that position seems to be changing a little bit. Uh, do you think that Basecamp will abandon CoffeeScript? You know, Turbolinks is also part of that discussion, um, you, know, if, you know, maybe in favor of a new front-end framework or something like that. You know, wh where are we going with the front-end on Rails? Sure. I think that's a great topic because a lot has happened. A lot has happened in the 14 years or so that I've been writing Rails and JavaScript has not stood still. So a lot of the opinions that I've held over the years about JavaScript have evolved along with it, along with the changing environment and sort of both what's expected, what you can do and the tooling itself. So it's certainly no secret that in the early days of Rails, I was not a big fan of JavaScript. I mm -hmm. thought the environment itself was just terrible. The language was shoddy and poor support for my favorite style of programming, which is object orientation. Um, it was just hacks upon hacks, and it was uh, all this patchwork to make things work well between the browsers. Then we entered the age of jQuery, which made things certainly better, um, enjoyable is, I think, a big word to perhaps apply to the style of JavaScript development that went on at the time. But fine. Um, I thought things certainly got better, right? Like jQuery was a huge jump forward compared to the JavaScript that I've been writing in the early 2000s and so forth. And then now, um, if we sort of split it up into those three phases where we have um, a much better 
JavaScript uh, ecosystem, the language itself has improved leaps and bounds. I did a big deep dive um, just over a year ago, getting up to speed on, on the latest with, um, with ES6 and with Webpack and basically the whole ecosystem. And I thought that on the language side and on the tooling side through things like Webpack and having the ability now to use the latest standards before they're encoded into the browsers, I thought, wow, this is so much better than what I remember. And in fact, I'd go so far as to say this is enjoyable, which is not a term I had <laughs> generally used about JavaScript in the past. What I did find, though, in my explorations was that the framework side of things, still not a big fan. Um, I actually think that, well, I, I should qualify that a little bit. I think the React's basic approach of blow away state and re-render the whole thing um, is sound. And I think that there's a kernel of it in there that, that really makes a lot of sense. Where I just go like, this is terrible, is when you pair it up with uh, the way that people are building large modern applications. Redux, for example, as a, as a pattern of, of how you flow your control logic and so on, I've looked at that a number of times and I've just gone, this is worse than J2E in a number <laughs> of serious ways. This is more convoluted, more complex, uh, more self-congratulatory in its complexity <laughs> than almost anything I've seen since those dark ages of, uh, of J2E. And... I thought, like, this is fascinating. It's fascinating that the JavaScript ecosystem, on the one hand, can make this wonderful progress on the language side and on the tooling side. And then, on the other hand, dive back into the dark cages of, of the early 2000s and find all the enterprise-y terrible patterns and see, hey, can we outdo those in terribleness? And go, yes, we can. <laughs> And I think, I mean, even just React in itself, the whole notion of we've spent, what, uh, two decades advocating separation of concerns and model view control and so on. And React just goes like, oh, yeah, all that. No, just put it in the same box and just shake <laughs> it around and then nest it five levels deep and then see if something comes out on the other side. Now, I get on the React side in particular, like it certainly solved a bunch of problems um, that people were having and they liked that solution. What I found is a lot of the problems that um, so-called modern JavaScript frameworks proposed to solve were not problems that I had. And when I talk about problems I have, I'm talking mainly about building web applications like Basecamp. And Basecamp mm -hmm. is the majority of what I do and it's been the majority of what I've done for the last 15 years. But I've also built, I don't know, probably 20 other web applications over that period of time. Everything from high-rise to campfire to backpack to whatever else have you. So I feel like I have a relatively broad experience in that, but it's certainly narrow in some sense. So it's mostly about information systems. There's no gaming. There's no a bunch of other domains that have other specific considerations where some of these uh, solutions solve really hard problems that just weren't easily solved before. So that's sort of a long preamble to, to the fact that I, I love the advantages made in the sort of core ecosystem around the language, uh, Webpack and other tooling that allows us to use the best of the new standards. I like the um, sort of the liveliness of it. I mean, JavaScript was just dead as a language, mm -hmm. as a as an ecosystem for long periods of time where people just said like, oh, well, the browser doesn't support it, can't use it. 
Now we have poly fields up the wazoo, so we basically get to use everything, even on broad applications that have to support a wide variety of browsers. Anyway, on the framework side, as I said, not a big fan. And it's not just about Redux and React. I've looked at everything from Vue to Angular to even Ember, which I otherwise share a lot of um, sort of intellectual overlap with certainly the way Yehuda views the world. There's a lot of overlap there, and there's a lot of Rubyisms, and, and I appreciate all that. Um, I just don't want to work with it. So what do I want to work with instead? It's not just about having a negative vision of, of what JavaScript framework land looks like. It's also about having a positive vision for it. And my positive vision is, is divided into two camps. There's Turbolinks, which I am as big and as a heavier of a proponent as, as ever. We've doubled down on Turbolinks for Basecamp. We use Turbolinks for everything. Turbolinks is the thing that allows us to have a tiny team that maintains native applications across Android and iOS and um, Windows and, and, and OS X because we can use one common base, and that base is fast enough that um, we can have five out of five star ratings on our so-called native apps in the app stores, right? Even though those native apps are 95% web apps and they're 95% web apps powered by Turbolinks. So Turbolinks is this magic secret sauce that um, I'm fascinated by its uh, controversial uptake, perhaps is a good way to put it. Um, but I just go like, well, I mean, you know what, the reason I make open source is I want to solve my own problems. And Turbolink solves a huge part of the problem that I have as a software creator, creating software for untold number of platforms, and I want the damn near the best fidelity that I can get. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, Turbolinks 5 in particular has gone now all in to support the native story. Um, we have frameworks for Android, we have frameworks for iOS, and these are literally the things that we use to make our native apps. But it's only half the story. Turbolinks is wonderful in the sense that it gives you basically the speed and the fidelity of a fully native app through a very conventional uh, application structure that does not require any of the Redux madness to tracking state and, and changing views and so on. Um, but basically lets you pretend that what you're writing is a 2003 style web application where you return the entire view every time which turns out to be the best style that I've found for programmer productivity and happiness and cohesiveness and, and approachability by as many different uh, factors within our company, whether it's programmers or designers, they can all sort of wrap their head around it because it's really very easy. I mean, I've liked in, this in the past to sort of the, the kernel of the idea from, from React, which is that you re-render everything all the time, right? That is basically what Turbolinks does. You, you click a link and you re-render the whole thing. It just doesn't have any of the performance penalties that this usually does. Anyway, there's also a separate part of that, which is is sort of that's great when just you're doing is what you're changing pages. Well, what if you have to do something dynamic on a page? You're not changing between pages. You want to do something dynamic within a page. And oftentimes you do have to um, do some dynamic JavaScript for that. And that was what about a year ago um, I really started digging into. We had at Basecamp, um, it's funny. I love these words that can work on both sides of the fence. When I say JavaScript sprinkles, some people chuckle and like, haha, that's stupid. And other people like myself <laughs> go, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. I love, love JavaScript sprinkles. Like, it's a wonderful term. I love these terms that where there's no sort of 
argument over the term itself because both sides think it's in their favor to brand it as such. Anyway, we've used JavaScript sprinkles. We have a lot of JavaScript sprinkles, right? Like we have, I don't know, a megabyte or something uh, before you start compressing it. And that's all this dynamic stuff that like, oh, what happens when you click this button and it manipulates a small part of the page and it does mm-hmm. filtering or whatever it is that it does, right? We did not have a good structured way of writing that. It was basically written in jQuery, coffee scripts, encapsulations. Um, and you know what? Sort of in some ways, it's kind of fine and fine in the same way that I really appreciate PHP for some things, like this idea of just a single encapsulation. If you can ignore everything else that's going on in the world, it's actually not that bad. But we had a bunch of different styles going on. So I set myself on a mission that can we standardize this? Basically, can we framework this? And came up with essentially a framework that we've been using internally at Basecamp for good, I think, six months almost since we started writing code in this framework. It's a very – framework is even a big word for what I, – I mean, it is a framework. It's a very lo-fi framework. What it, it's mostly defined by the things it does not do, which is one of these things that I love, right? <laughs> yeah. We're not doing. Um, it doesn't really concern itself much with rendering because – where you, when you look at all these other frameworks, Angular and React and whatever, they're all about rendering. How do you take um, some data structure, usually JSON, and turn it into a DOM tree, right? Well, in a world where you believe that turbolinks is the primary way that you inject new DOM elements into your application, that doesn't really make sense. Like what I'm doing is actually manipulating DOM elements that are already on the page. It's about adding and removing classes. It's about adding and removing DOM elements more so than it is about generating them, right? So this framework focuses on basically that, focuses on a way to capture events, um, route them accordingly, and and do all this uh, manipulation of existing DOM elements that we have on a page, um, and put that into a structured fashion that actually in many ways also feels controller-ish. So you have basically, you have user clicking buttons or other events popping up and, and you're capturing those and you're flowing them through a conventionalized structure and, and flow that where you know where things go, where they're properly called, where you can read a piece of DOM and through attributes see exactly what's going on. Anyway, we're kind of working on that. We're hoping to get that out. We're hoping to get this out this month uh, in its first release. We've been using it at Basecamp for a long time. It's not at all like any of the other, like this is not another JavaScript framework in the sense of like, this is another way to render DOM elements from J- JSON. It doesn't really concern itself much with that. Um, is it but it's been enormously dependent? beneficial to how we write Basecamp code. And if I were to start another application tomorrow, this is the combination I would use. Turbolinks for the 90% case where you just need to change pages and stimulus, which is what we call this new framework, for the last 10% of the dynamic behavior that needs to manipulate within a page. Is this, you called it Himalus? Stimulus, like a stimulus package. Okay, is that that dependent on TurboLinks? Does it work in conjunction with TurboLinks or is it kind of independent, uh, can run by itself? It's independent, it can run by itself, but the magic is the combination of the two because the combination of the two covers the full spread of sort of front-end dynamicism that we try to achieve in an application like Basecamp. So essentially it, it covers things like animations and, you know, appearing, yes. disappearing, all of that stuff that you used to do with jQuery. 
Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, some of these, even those things have kind of involved, like we used to do a lot of animation mm -hmm. in JavaScript and now CSS has animations and so But just even that fact, like how do you add and remove the classes from, from the elements that you're pointing to and doing all that work and also talking to the back end. That's the other part of it. Sometimes, for example, you click a button and what you want to do is you want to replace a small part of the page. Like for example, um, take to-dos in Basecamp. You have a to-do list and at the bottom you have a form that accepts a new to-do item. When you enter that item, all the conventional JavaScript, quote unquote, modern frameworks will do that rendering client side, which means that they will duplicate the templates or they will try to share the isomorphic templates back and forth, which I think is usually a load of baloney and doesn't really work in practice. What we say is keep the templates in one place, yes, but let that place be on the client or on the server side for the vast mm -hmm. majority of cases. There are some cases where that's not possible, but for the vast majority of cases, it totally is possible. Anyway, what Simulus would do would perhaps take that form, uh, when you click submit, uh, turn that data into a request, send it to the server side, repeat, receive a chunk of HTML back, not a chunk of JSON, a chunk of HTML back from the server and insert it where it needs to go. So this is sort of also a continuation of the ideas about SJR, whether you're rendering, what, what are you rendering on the server side when you're doing JavaScript? Are you rendering JSON or are you rendering HTML? We do both. There's some cases where you don't get around sort of client-side templates, but the vast majority of cases, you do get around it. And then it's so much easier and so much <laughs> nicer to work with when you just have one set of templates on the server side that are used both for the initial render and for all initial updates and so on and so forth. And what I find interesting with this whole discussion is just like, it feels like we have this secret weapon that is not secret at all, but we've laid out for all to see, and yet somehow it's still secret. It's like, I get that um, certain organizations of a certain size can sort of standardize on things. And if you have, I don't know, 10,000 developers that need to work on Facebook, maybe the Redux, whatever, fine, right? I go like, wait, what if you just like two developers or one developer that need to make a new app that works on iOS and Android? And like, what do you do? How do you do it? And I mean, in my opinion, the answer is you don't do it, right? that the world we have today around JavaScript has become so specialized um, and so labor intensive that when I talk to other like-minded uh, people who run software companies and I ask about the team sizes they have for sort of the different applications, I am staggered by how large a lot of modern teams are that work on, on web applications. I go like, what are all these people doing? And then I just go back to my Redux example and go, oh, that, that explains it. It took a lot of people to make a J2E application back in the early 2000s, and it takes a lot of people to make a Redux um, React application with the whole thing, right? Because that's the thing. It's not just that. The whole thing has to work. Someone's, you got to have a backend of some kind too, right? You got to have all the things. And I just find that the productivity we're getting out of this sort of disbursement of tooling is atrocious. And this was the whole reason for Ruby on Rails. Why did I make Ruby on Rails? Because I wanted as a single individual to be able to make all the things. I made the entire version of Basecamp as just me, right? 10 hours a week. Um, and then for years we ran just on me. And I'm thinking again, like if I have to go out and basically, I, this was the topic of my RailsConf talk, I think about two years ago, like this uh, survival pack, right? If I have to reboot, Basecamp blows up tomorrow. I have to start a new online business application. I'm just me. What's the tooling I would want in my toolbox if I had just my own money, no VC, 
whatever. Um, I have to make my own things happen. Can I compete? Can I put together a tool set that allows tiny teams to create applications that will be five out of five star rating with 3,000 reviews as our iOS app is um, and put the whole thing together with a tiny team? To me, stimulus, turbolings, they're, they're rocket fuel for that kind of stuff. They're rocket fuel for productivity and for tiny teams. Anyway, I've, I've used a lot of the time we had. On no, no, it's all good. <laughs> No, you're fine. Uh, I, I, I got a follow-up question and another question for you. Uh, the follow-up is, um, do you see, like, let's say other people come in and look at Rails. Do, do you see uh, Stimulus providing the 80% or the 90% that people decide, you know, I can't go without some front-end framework? Do you see that that would provide them enough for what they need? And then the second question I kind of want to lead into here is, as as you're growing this, how does this differ from newer frameworks coming out that might be taking a lot of the ideas of of Rails and, and building upon it? Like, for example, Phoenix. I'm sure you're tired of hearing questions about Phoenix, but I, I'd love you to address that if that's okay. Sure, absolutely. Um, so for the first question, this is why we're creating these tools, right? Like for me, the backpack is like, what is the mountain someone has to climb to be able to learn Ruby on Rails and its affiliated set of technologies to be able to create stuff. Um, to me, Turbolinks and Stimulus fits into that beautifully. Because if I had to ask someone like, oh, you want to make it, you want to develop for the web? Here's what you have to learn. And then first I show them the Ruby on Rails, just back in stack. And then I try to teach them about React and Redux on top of that. I mean, we build a sort of a 10 year Right. education hill for someone to climb to be self-sufficient, right? Which is, of course, not what's happening. What's happening is that people are specializing and they're coming in, oh, yeah, I'm a front-end developer that works with X little thing because we've made these traps so damn deep that you really can only fall into one of them at the time, right? You cannot get the generalist sense anymore. Or so it seems, right? Like I'm trying to provide, we're trying to provide that alternative, a generalist alternative where tiny teams don't have to study for 10 years before they can make software products that can compete. On the topic of sort of other frameworks and learning from, I'll, I'll refer back to another RailsConf talk. This one is from, I think, 2007 or 2006. And it, it was, um, the surplus is not going to last. 10 years ago, I thought Ruby and Rails not only has created a huge splash, it's shown a lot of people how you can do things a whole lot simpler than the prevailing technology out there, this will not last. People will take all the lessons from Ruby and Rails and they will apply them in other environments and we're going to have five other Ruby and Rails-like environments in different languages and Ruby does not have any other sort of institutional advantages, like there's not a big company behind it pushing it, there's not it doesn't have any of these things, right? So this is going to be tough. You know what I've seen in the last 10 years? I've seen that totally not happen. I've seen the controversial points that Ruby on Rails makes, the kind of philosophical approaches that we're taking in the sort of the rail, um, Rails uh, manifesto and so on, it's just not spreading because most programmers actually don't want those things to be true. They don't want those priorities to be true. They don't want to make those trade-offs. Uh, they don't want to value, say, um, beautiful or ergonomic code over other things. And I think actually Phoenix is a good example. I have lots of respect for what they're doing with Excel, uh, um, 
Elixir in general has been doing, what Jose has been doing with it, it's wonderful. And it's great to see that sort of the diaspora of Ruby has spread into other environments, not just Elixir and Erlang, but Rust and other places. There's a lot of sort of the community approaches and so on, I think they're spreading well, and some of the ergonomic ideas too. But if you look at basically the selling pitch for something like Phoenix, it is um, it is not that we've outdone Ruby on Rails or Ruby on ergonomics, right? It is actually like, hey, hey, listen, guys, you're going to have to take a hit on these things. You're going to have to take a hit on ergonomics. You're going to have to take a hit on the complete package. You're going to actually go way more uh, a la carte. You're going to have to put together your own damn toolkit. And then what you get back is you, you get back some performance and some parallelization ideas, and you get back some of these benefits, right? These were never the benefits that I care about. Like Ruby was fast enough for me in 2003, right? How much cheaper and better has hardware gotten in the last 15 years? A lot. Like when I look at the money we spend at Basecamp, the thing I do not worry about is how much we're spending on CPUs, right? It's just not, it's not even a line item. I can't buy one engineer at market price for a year to, to sort of make up for what we're, we're getting back. Now, that's Basecamp. Basecamp is in this sort of medium land of internetness, right? Like we're, we don't have internet scale in the sense that a, that a Facebook or a Twitter or a whatever, one of the sort of top 10 properties of the internet does. We have a lot of scale. And I think a lot of people would be surprised just how much scale we're putting through it. And we're even sort of small-ish, even within the Ruby on Rails community. If you look at the numbers that, say, Shopify are putting through mm. their machinery, they're staggering, right? Like 80,000 requests a second and, and that kind of stuff. And I think, again, if you, if you ask Toby, as I have, um, in general, would you trade, like, if you could get X percent more performance, like, what would that be worth to you? If you had to double your engineering staff or have higher, 50 percent more engineers, or whatever it is the number is. No, is the answer. No. There, there's over the past 15 years, do you know what has gotten more expensive? Programmers. Right? Like if you look at the cost of hiring capable programmers who sort of know and can be productive about this, what that cost in 2003, I'll tell you what it cost because Jason hired me back in 2001 to 2003 and paid me between $15 and $25 an hour. Labor was cheap. And even at that rate, $15 to $20 an hour, when labor is cheap, it was still a good deal, given how slow Ruby is. Now, fast forward 15 years where you're not going to hire any capable programmers for, 50, for $25 an hour, right? That's just not going to happen. And how much faster machines have gotten. Like To me, the Ruby story gets better every day. Again, that is at the scale up until the point where you're literally serving the entire internet. If you have 1.8 billion users accessing your site every month, I suppose you have to use PHP. That's a joke. Um, <laughs> as in just to say, like, you can make anything scale and, and nothing goes back. So, so these sort of, that's not, again, to say that there aren't scenarios and there aren't considerations where the parallelism and the scale that you might be able to get out of an Erlang or a Phoenix or whatever makes sense totally possible it's just i don't have that problem it, it's not a problem that's that interesting to me because i work on my own problems and all the power and all the respect 
to people who have different problems and want to solve those in different ways. What I just keep telling you, if, if you want to build this software build business that's similar in ways to, say, a Basecamp or a Shopify or a GitHub or a Hi-Rise or a Square or any of these other traditional, conventional businesses, Ruby on Rails remains one of the best bangs for the buck in the business in terms of productivity. And, and I mean, even that, again, 2003, I, I think back about like how good of a deal Ruby was for me back then and how much better of a deal it is today. The ecosystem is intense, deep, well-maintained. Um, the community is amazing. Uh, I think this is one of the things that has uh, been the most satisfying to me watching the Ruby and Rails community over the past 15 years is how much wider it's gotten. If In 2003, if you wanted to make Ruby, you had to be in a pretty privileged position. Like, first of all, no one was interested in hiring you, so you'd have to have this copious amounts of spare time where you could just play around with it. And then maybe you found some sort of offshoot company that were willing to hire Ruby programmers. You probably have to take a pay cut. Uh, Aaron Patterson just tweeted about this um, uh, the <laughs> other day about like how when he started on Ruby, um, people had to take a pay cut to, to be able to work with it. And, and nowadays we have programmers who've never known another language. I mean, what amazing success and conquest that that has, that has been. But what it has done is it's given up the frontier. Ruby on Rails has not been on the frontier in a very, very long time. Um, what is on the frontier are sort of things like Elixir and Phoenix and Rust. And there are other communities that are pushing the frontiers. And that's really exciting. I mean, I, I don't mean that in any, there's no sarcasm in that statement. I believe that to be true. Um, and that excitement attracts a certain kind of programmer, which is mm -hmm. wonderful. Like that, Ruby would never have gotten off the ground if that was not true, right? The frontier always needs cowboys and frontiers and cowgirls um, to sort of push that forward, right? So it's wonderful that we have that. And Ruby and Rails have given that up. We've, we, we have a functioning society now. There's no saloon where people just get shot every morning over a whiskey. Um, we have healthcare and childcare and like working infrastructure and transportation and monorails and like this is just a different thing, right? There's, there's a certain kind of programmer who likes to live in well-developed civilizations. And then there's a certain kind of programmer who wants to have a lasso and a, and a horse and go chase stuff. And we need all of it. We need all of it to have healthy progress in software and computer science and community development and so on and so forth. I just, I was happy trading in my cowboy hat for uh sort of uh, a bureaucracy of, of progress, slow, measured, but broad scale progress. Uh, I think that that's often the tragedy of a lot of interesting pieces of technology is that they appeal to uh, this pioneer frontier set, the early adopters, and then it never crosses the chasm and it never gets to have an impact at the larger scale. And this is one of the things, when, so when I hear about people who are learning Ruby as their first language, I go like, that's amazing. Do you know what the first language I had to deal with in computer science classes? It was C and Java. And I mean, I get the, <laughs> some people like that stuff. I did not. And I saw so many of my fellow possibly could have been programmers turn into no way I'm going to be a programmer after having to deal with that nonsense. Um, so I feel like as a, as a profession, we're putting such a better foot forward now by having languages like Ruby, and not just Ruby, I, I even to some extent include JavaScript in this now, that there's a lot of people who get exposed to JavaScript as their first language, and I feel 
Okay. On a lot of levels, as long as you're not getting sucked into these uh, framework maelstroms, um, that's also better. I now, forgot what question even was it. No, no, it's all good. You it's covered. <laughs> yeah. Um, one one thing you you talked a little bit about how the industry has moved ahead, and you know people cost more, programmers cost more. And uh, one of the things that was on our question list, I think Eric put this one in, um, was that uh, there's an understanding that you don't typically hire senior developers. And we were wondering, is that true? And if not, if, if that is true, then why don't you and how do you compensate for not having senior experience, whatever the word is, people? That is, that is true. And I'll go into a longer story about that. First, I'll refute the last part, though that we don't have senior people at Basecamp. We have incredibly senior people at Basecamp. Jeremy Dare was, I believe, the first person to join Rails Core when that was incorporated. Um, he has worked on Ruby on Rails since 2003 with me, and I think I hired him in 2005, maybe. So I've worked with Jeremy for, what? What is that? 14 years or mm -hmm. something like that? Jeremy is... My definition of a senior principal programmer, he works at Basecamp. Um, Sam Stevenson, I uh, hired in 2005. I think he needs no introduction. He's worked at Basecamp ever since. Um, so that's also over 10 years. Um, Jeff Hardy, who doesn't have the same sort of profile in the public community, uh, has also worked for Basecamp about 10 years. What we do at Basecamp is we grow seniority. We don't hire it. Uh, uh, and that is was not a intentional strategy uh, necessarily out the gates as much as it became an acquired preference. And that acquired preference came through experience of hiring a variety of people at variety levels of seniority and seeing that if we had the patience to train junior talent, that turned out better. That people who were senior were senior because they had worked a long time in other environments with um, in other structures, other organizations, and so on. And the unlearning that needed to happen in a lot of cases to become proficient, not just with the way we program, but the way our organization works, the responsibility we put on people in terms of managers of one, um, it's surprisingly difficult. The transition from uh, being a very senior person in another organization that is significantly different to how Basecamp operates is hard. And we learned that it was hard through failure and through failure of adoption. And then on the flip side, we saw time and again, people starting out in relatively junior positions, not necessarily junior, junior, although we've hired a Good number of that, too, and had extremely good success with it. Um, but that worked out better. That someone who came up through Basecamp from a junior level and sort of entered the equation without the expectations that they needed to, quote, unquote, hit the ground running, that we as a company had an expectation that this is going to take a while. This pro programmer might not be productive for a couple of years at the level of what we really are looking for. But when they are, holy shit. The fit and the uh, match that you get out of that when you have that sort of level of patience is incredible. I mean, 
I think that this is one of the other strengths of how we work at Basecamp and how we still, after all these years, given the number of applications we've done, the amount of open source work we contribute to, what a small organization we have. On the website of things, we have, what, 10 programmers or something like that? Like it's, it's a tiny, it's a tiny <laughs> company in that sense. Um, a lot of them have been there for a long time, and they've been there for a long time, and they've grown senior through their experience at, at Basecamp. Um, and then we've hired uh, new people who came in at a junior level, and we just said, like, the industry average, I think, for uh, employment uh, is 18 months. So on average, someone in the tech industry stays at one company for 18 months, and then they, they change. I totally get that if you look at that and say, like, oh, yeah, we will expect the average tenure. You can't just hire junior people because they're never going to arrive at senior before they've left your organization. We look at things that, like, hey, we have several people. I think the if you just took the average of how long people have been at Basecamp in the programming positions, it's probably like five or six years. Um, and we have plenty, as I said, who've been there for more than a decade. And that's the intention we have. We have a very nostalgic maybe even archaic notion of employee-employment relationship where we think Basecamp should and could be the only place someone ever worked. That someone can go from straight out of school, for example, um, George, uh, who joined the, the Rails Committers team and was pivotal on active storage, um, he was an intern. He started as an intern. Uh, he then continued to finish his degree, and then we hired him. There's a completely realistic path where George does not work at another company in his professional life. And that fills me with an intense sense of pride. And not only pride, I've seen it work. I've seen the productivity that you can get out when someone has that deep of a knowledge about a company and a culture and a way of working and the contributions that can come out of that, right? So we're just on different timescales. We can do things differently because we have that. And that's in part because Basecamp isn't on a five to seven year trajectory before it needs to be sold. Um, lots of companies in, um, in the software industry are infused with venture capital. They're on vesting timelines. They're on other things. And the, idiocy of how many people, how a lot of companies run their HR policies goes that it's actually in employees' best interest to job hop because mm -hmm. that's the way you get a raise, that's the way you get a promotion, that's the way you sort of progress in your career. And that makes no sense. Why would someone have to change job to get paid market rate, for example, right? It makes no <laughs> sense. It's bad business. And I mean, I'm not saying that just out of altruism because I just want to keep productive people around for a long time. I want to say like, this is just, it makes more sense. It makes for happier employees. It makes for lower costs for the business. Um, all these benefits that come from just being decent and thinking about things for the long term. Again, I get that that's a privilege that we can enjoy because actually, I don't know why. Because we've had this um, perspective and optics from the beginning, from the time where Basecamp only barely paid our salaries to to now, right? Um, so I think it is about a mindset. And this is one of those things, again, when we talked about, like, why have why aren't there tons of Ruby on Rails clones in other environments? Why aren't there people also pursuing full stack uh, frameworks and so on? Because they have different philosophy, because they have different values, and because they do make different trade-offs. And when I then look at, like, why can Basecamp hire junior people and then grow them into senior people over the course of a decade? 
Well, because we have different values and different timelines and different configurations. Um, so that's where, like, to me, that's where the moat is. There is no technological moat in Ruby and Rails. Like someone could totally take that and clone that and put it into something else. The moat is in the values and the controversial nature of those values that make it such that they're not easy to adopt, that they require personal change to adopt, right? And I, I see the same on the company side. Like, I, so we wrote a book called um, Remote about three years ago, I think, uh, mm-hmm. promoting remote work. And before I started writing that book with Jason, I sort of had somehow lulled myself into thinking, um, this is, people got this, right? Remote work, so obviously has all these benefits and advantages and, and so on. Like, And then I started talking to, to company owners and would raise the topic of remote and they'd go like, oh no, I mean, the only way, like we need hands on deck, uh, we need shoulder to shoulder, like this is the only way you can get um, creative ideas. And, and I just think like, wait, what? Like, isn't this technology, aren't we supposed to be the vanguard of like the frontier of, of innovation and so on? And you guys are stuck in an idea of the office as 1950s. What is going on? So we wrote remote, uh, tried to encapsulate and incorporate these ideas. And I thought like, oh, this is it, right? Like now you just have a manual. You don't even have to do any of the groundwork or the research or whatever. You just have to read this thing and you can be convinced. No. How many people, how many companies have adopted remote work? None of the major Silicon Valley outfits really like that very much, it seems. And the trite explanations for why Yahoo and others need to roll it back um, are the same that people used 30 years ago. And you go like, this is hard. And why is it hard? It's not because the knowledge is hard. It's not because the technology is hard. It's because the values and the trade-offs are hard. It's hard to change your outlook. But if you can, that's the most powerful of all. Then all the other things sort of fall from there, right? Anyway, and I forgot the question. So that's probably time to... (laughs) (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. That, that's really great. And it's, it's interesting, too, because I talk to junior developers and I've talked to you know, people that contact me because, hey, you know, you've got this podcast, you talk to developers, why can't we hire any senior people? And it's, you know, I, I talked to them about hiring junior people and, you know, you, you've addressed like all of the things that, that they bring up and it's, it, it really does come down to values and I think sometimes we overlook that in favor of some of the other uh, technical or uh, other issues that we, you know, seem to be more pressing at the time sometimes. One of the other things, though, uh, that just comes to mind is like when I hear this, like, oh, it's so hard to hire developers. No, it's not. You just don't want to pay them enough. 
Right? <laughs> so the baseline right there is, well, it's not the only thing, right? But until you've addressed that, like I hear this all the time from people who write me, no, oh, it's so hard to find developers. Oh, um, so like, what are you trying? Like, yeah, I mean, I can't find anyone for $60,000 a year. No. Okay. That, that's why, right? Like uh, it just so happens that which is another interesting debate. It's like, how is this even possible? Like uh, technology has been on such a bull run for the past decade plus, and there's been such a shortage of, of programmers and we've been pumping them out in some extent through boot camps and other ways. Um, and yet still the market is such that skilled developers demand an incredible premium and incredible benefits over the rest of the economy. Um, so you have to play in that market, which is something else we do Basecamp. So at Basecamp, even though we do all these things and, and we try to be a fantastic place to work and have great benefits, we also realize that like we also got to pay market rates, right? So Basecamp pays in the top 5% of technology companies based on Chicago rates. And that's, that's just the table stakes. So if, if you don't even bring the table stakes, don't come whining to me that you can't hire developers. Um, and if you don't want to bring table stakes, there are other alternatives. Like you can, first of all, just start hiring internationally. Um, there's a lot of environments where you can hire cheaper. You can give serious and meaningful slices of equity. Um, although even that seems to be a commodity these days. So you have to compete. I mean, think about like, oh, employees, they have to level up and they have to have all these skills. Yeah, so there's companies. If you have sheet policies and you have sheet pay, don't come whining about being unable to hire developers. There's plenty of them, right? There's millions of them. And you have to hire them from someone else. So you have to compete for that, uh, for that through mission or benefits and pay or, or whatever else you have. But um, there's plenty of them. So it's not like, like, oh, there's five and like all companies trying to hire the same five. No, there are millions. So. Yeah. One thing, one thing I've noticed lately too, and it ties to what you're saying is that when people are switching jobs, a lot of them, We'll then have a back channel conversation around, okay, well, what are the values there? What's it like working there? So, I mean, to compete, I think now people really do need to pay attention to how do we treat each other? What do we value? What do we prioritize? How do we do this? Yep. Yes. And I think that that's one of the, again, moats that we inadvertently have at Basecamp, but not because we, I'm trying to sort of fill that moat, remote work, for example. Um, when I talk to Jeremy, Sam, and uh, Jeff, three of our most senior developers at Basecamp who've been at Basecamp for more than 10 years. None of them live in San Francisco. None of them are interested in living in San Francisco. Uh, none of them are interested in living in New York. They like where they live. They want to stay there. So we have a moat in some regards around these senior developers that you would think otherwise would be very attractive for someone else to, to sort of hire, right? And you sort of like, you're not even competing. For a lot of developers who, who end up in situations like that, where Jeff, for example, he lives on a, in a remote place in Canada on a huge tract of land somewhere where there's no technology seen in, I don't know, probably hundreds of miles. I don't even know, right? Um, how are you going to compete against that? Like Jeff already makes, as I said, top 5% salary based on Chicago rates of the most senior program you can find, right? So, so that table stake is already there. So unless you're going to walk in and say like, hey, Jeff, come work at Google and I'm going to give you a million dollar signing bonus or whatever it is that would entice that. I'd actually be curious to ask Jeff that. Like, hey, Jeff, uh, if Google came with a million dollar signing bonus, would you switch? Um, and the fact that I wouldn't just say like, oh, instantly he would take that. Even though he probably would. I mean, who knows? Um, 
is interesting. And I think that there's just there's a lot of these other levels where where companies and especially new starting companies can compete, right? Again, it comes back to the same thing. Oh, I can't find developers. Well, have you tried letting them work from home? Like just that right there, right? There's tons of developers <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't want to live in any of these tech hubs. I want to live where I want to live. What kind of job is available to me there? Um, anyway. So I think yeah, Dave... I've forgotten what it's like to go job hopping. I've been in the same company for like eight, nine years now, you know, doing Rails and programming. So I forget what it's like being on the other side of the table in an interview. <laughs> but I just also, a, I mean, just let's take that table, right? The interview table. Holy, what a show that is in most places. Like yeah. getting asked to go up to the <laughs> whiteboard to do some sort of arithmetic or puzzle or do a bubble sort or whatever. One of the actually my highest retweeted tweet of all time was the thing where I said, like, I wouldn't be able to do a bubble sort in a, in a programming interview on a whiteboard, which I still believe to be true, even though I actually went back after I tweeted that and I don't know, 20,000 people retweeted it. I went back and said, like, actually, bubble sort probably isn't that hard. Let me kind of read up on it. And I read up on it, like, and I remembered it for a couple of days. And then I went like, yeah, OK, if you ask me again now, I can't remember. <laughs> and I don't feel bad about that. And if you asked me in an interview, I would fail that interview. So if you have interview processes like this, which is what most technology companies do, again, you're just starting off from sh like, yeah. <laughs> yep. So I did have a question and uh, kind of a statement. So uh, the new active storage, I've checked it out. And some of the things that you guys are doing in there is really cool. And so far to date, there's no other uploader gem that's really taking the concept of, polymorphic associations and having just one upload model and then having just a uh, helper method or something in your model tie into that. So that's really cool. Uh, and that's coming out in Rails 5.2, right? Uh, what are some of the insider tips that you have of what's to come with that? What's your vision of where active storage is going? Yeah, I, I'm glad you pick up on that because that point with uh, having the polymorphic association, I think, is is one of the key benefits and key differences that active storage, through the wonders of this thing of a full stack framework, uh, allowed itself to assume the other parts of the framework being present. Active storage is tied straight into active record. Like uh, it's it's building on top of active record. It's building on top of all these elements that we already have in the framework, and therefore by making these choices. And these trade-offs, it can get some serious power and ease of use out of it. Versus if you were doing sort of some generic level of upload gem that didn't want to tie itself to active record, that didn't want to have to rely on a database or whatever, then you leave that exercise for the reader, which just means that a lot of people are re-implementing a lot of the same ways of handling this logic. My concept and idea was that you should be able to store file in the modern way of storing file, which today is on the cloud. Um, through like two lines of code. That it should just be trivial. You enter your S3 or Azure or Cloud Store credentials, um, and then you can just basically say attach. And then the rest of it is kind of made there for you. And this didn't come out of a dream so much as, again, an extraction. This was how we were um, moving towards to do file storage as Basecamp. We had just been in a large transition to move to cloud storage. We had maintained our own three data center uh, storage at Basecamp, on-premise hardware and all that stuff. And progress with cloud storage has just been relentless. We did a, a cost-benefit analysis about four years ago or something that showed that on-premise was still totally beating the cloud storages in terms of 
the performance that we were looking for and the price. And then four years later, boom, the price has just dropped so much that it just doesn't make sense for us to maintain our own stuff. Um, not the least because when you maintain your own storage solutions, you have to deal with the dreaded entity of enterprise storage solution companies, which is a whole <laughs> upon it all. Um, and these companies are bought and sold like every 18 months and it's just terrible. So even if there's good technology and good solutions, everything is going to, in the end, end up owned by EMC or IBM. And you do not want to deal with either EMC or IBM on anything. Well, I think Dell acquired EMC. Yeah, Dell too. Yeah, I mean, did. can you imagine? Um, <laughs> this is where technology goes to die. But regardless, so... Um, uh, we ended up in a, in a situation where, where we wanted to, to use cloud storage. And, and a lot of the traditional upload gem solutions sort of were born out of another era where cloud storage wasn't the primary thing, right? Like a lot of them had tacked it up on SINs, but it wasn't sort of born with that from the start. Now, active storage went in with that mission. From the start, we want to, that's what we want to focus on. I don't even, the only reason we have a local storage adapter is for testing. I mean, there's there's no idea for active storage to really deal with on-premise storage. It's all going to be cloud, um, which also led to other things like direct upload. But that's another interesting mm -hmm. factor that you can get to with uh, with cloud storage and something we actually didn't have initially on the very first release. Um, we hadn't. We were still sort of in the process of figuring out our transition at Basecamp, and um, and thankfully some of the feedback was like, oh yeah, active record sounds cool, but like it doesn't do direct upload, so it's like useless. And then like two days later or something, George and me hooked up um, uh, direct uploads. And then what we also did, which I, I really enjoy, and was again a pattern that we've extracted from Basecamp was uh, the ideas of previews and variants and other permutations of the uploaded data into other forms. Um, the traditional strategy that we had used at Basecamp was with the reuse jobs. So say someone uploads a uh, a big image, and at Basecamp we need to represent that in, in five different formats and five different sizes or whatever, right? We would kick off jobs, and then we would do these transformations in, in the jobs. Um, that can sort of work when you have on-premise because you have the files right there and, and, and so on. What we moved to instead, and what I found a much better and nicer way, is, is on-demand generation through hanging requests. So say you upload a, a big image, and then I redirect you to another page where you need to see that image, and that the way you see that image is through a preview, like 100 by 100 pixels or whatever it is, right? We let that request hang while we generate the uh, variant for you, which gives you this really nice flow that, first of all, you're not generating variants that you don't need, that aren't shown to the user. Um, it can happen in a, in a flow where you don't have to show a temporary image of, like, you don't have that data yet or whatever. It, the request is simply just hanging until this has been generated. And that approach worked very nicely with the, with the cloud storage. Um, so there was just a lot of choices that were informed by the fact that we went cloud storage first, um, extraction from, from Basecamp, full reliance on the entire rail stack that we assume active records presence and we built on top of it and so forth. Um, and again, I mean, this was <laughs> the funny thing. So here, here's how it happened. Um, in Basecamp, up until Active Storage, we had a bunch of code to basically do what Active Storage does, right? All built into the code. I started a new project because I wanted to experiment with some new ideas for future versions of Basecamps or other applications we might work on, and I wanted upload storage. 
And I went like, oh, yeah, let me just copy over the code from Basecamp. And I went like, oh, there's so much in code just to deal with like showing and uploading an image. And like, I'm not going to move over like 60 classes of crap all over the place. It's actually less work for me to just incorporate a new framework and then use that new framework in my new app than it is to bring over the code. So that's how the um, active storage came to be. It was just like, hey, it's easier to just create a new framework. And also, I was just offended, which with Basecamp, I mean, our... our applications tend to live three or four years. So we don't get that new app feel that often. I was starting a new app and I just went like, it's offensive that it's this difficult to deal with uploads. It should not be this difficult. And I tried, I looked at all the existing gems out there and I thought like, they do a nice job and they made make things easier, but I, I still don't like it. I don't, it's not simple enough. Um, this should be completely brain dead easy because there's no specialization needed. Everyone is doing the same thing. This is so ripe for frameworkization that it's it's kind of bewildering to me that we hadn't dealt with this issue sooner. Uh, and maybe some of that was just because um, this whole thing with cloud and so on, that that had made things so much easier. It's so much easier to deal with things um, when we just have these standardized interfaces and so forth. So that's how it came to be. And one thing on, on the trajectory, I want to make one point because um, it just I was reminded about a comment someone left on the Action Cable framework a while back. And someone was saying, is Action Cable dead? And the reason they were saying that was because they hadn't gotten any feedback uh, back on um, on a pull request that they had submitted, right? And then they assumed, I've got no feedback back on a pull request. That means the framework is dead. I was like, what? It just does what we needed to do. And that's how I generally work on things, right? Active storage right now is very close to doing what it needs to do for everything that we have when it regards to file uploads and so on at Basecamp. And when it hits that point, if I don't have a, there's not a roadmap, then I'm done. I'm, I'm happy. Again, that doesn't mean that there aren't other people contributing. Rails is a vibrant example of that, obviously. There's tons of frameworks inside of Rails that I have not touched in very long time because they do what they need to do for me, but they still see continued evolution because other people want more stuff in them. But that's one of those things where like framework and like what's the future of things. Like I usually just rush until something does all that it needs to do for me. And then I hand or I I share it with the world and then I say, have fun. I'm done. Later. Oh. Um, and then I move on to the next thing, right? Like, so before it was active storage with the action cable, like I kind of just moved through, like what's my next biggest problem? If I were to start a new app today and build Basecamp again from scratch, where would I go? Like, this is fucking offensive. And the funny thing is that these things sort of build on top of each other. You solve one major problem, right? And then all of a sudden, once that's solved, another one just pops out to you and you go like, oh yeah, fuck. Like, why isn't this easier? Now we made all these other things easier, making this problem look terrible in, in comparison. Anyway, how are we doing on the... Question count out of 29. <laughs> we've got, uh, I think we've got we've covered about a third of them, and I know we're running out of time. I do have one question for you that that is completely unrelated, and, and hopefully it's refreshing to get a question that's not related to Rails. Um, uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, you're, you're a smart dude. What are your thoughts on the whole Bitcoin, uh, you, you know, Ethereum, and like, is that something that you are – are, are are involved in personally is that what what are your views on that i feel this is almost a troll question because you know no, about no absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> no i'm kidding that um, i think bitcoin is is one of the most fascinating 
train wrecks um, that I've seen happen <laughs> in real time, and we're still observing it. And like the wall is there. Who knows where the wall when the wall is going to be next week or next month or whatever? But Bitcoin as the sort of investment hype thing that's going on right now is completely and utterly retarded and going to end very badly. That is my prediction. And my prediction is based on the fact that I seriously cannot even go to lunch anymore without overhearing another table go like, hey, man, let me tell you about this Bitcoin thing. I made so much money like you should just dude. And not only that, so there's the whole exuberance. <laughs> irrational exuberance going on around it, right? Um, but I find that even just the, the clown car show that's going on in the Bitcoin world where we're reinventing uh, commerce and uh, bank robbers and things we thought uh, were sort of long vanquished, uh, bringing them into forefront. For a technology that can currently process, what, seven transactions per second at a cost of, what, $5 or something? It's a joke. And I mean... I understand why people don't want to laugh because there's some people making gobs and gobs of money right now, or at least so it appears. Um, you haven't made the money until you've converted it into fiat currency, right? Yeah. Um, which also just gets me. Uh, someone from Basecamp made the joke that like uh, the only thing worse than someone telling you about CrossFit is someone telling you about Bitcoin. And it has that same sort of... <laughs> evangelical zeal that isn't based in knowledge or um, actuality or anything, just getting swept up. And that is where it feels like it is right now, swept up. But someone can legitimately look at the at the charge of how Bitcoin went from whatever to 10,000 and go like, no, no, no. I mean, that's really backed by fundamentals. You don't understand. This is going to 100,000, which it may well. I mean, that's the other thing I find hilarious in this debate. It's like, I've long been like, Hey, this Bitcoin, there's some interesting technology underneath, um, blockchain, blah, blah, blah. But the thing itself, Bitcoin itself as a, a store of value and so on, um, I don't think um, is sort of, uh, is this viable, sane idea? Um, and, and they go like, well, you said that when Bitcoin was 200, now it's a 10,000. That means it's the best idea ever and it's totally not a bubble. <laughs> That's not how that works. Not how that works at all. But, so Whatever. I don't have any money in it. I don't have. And the other thing I get too is like, oh, you're you're giving Bitcoin just because you missed it. What, dude? I have. I should caveat that because actually the feedback I got in that tweet, uh, my glib response was like, I already have more money than what I know I what to do with. Like, you know, whether I get in on Bitcoin, or I don't get in on Bitcoin. Do you know how little difference that's going to make in my life? None. Yeah. Okay. I get that. That's sort of a glib comment and then privilege. Blah blah blah. Um, the more sort of interesting part of that was like, yeah, I could also be crying over not having, I know the lottery numbers of last night. I know them now. I know all the numbers. It, this, I mean, am I going to cry about that? I know that if I had put all my money in Apple five years ago, that would have been wonderful. So what, right? Like, anyway, um, yeah, not a big fan of Bitcoin, the uh, scam, not a big fan of Bitcoin, the Ponzi scheme, not a big fan of Bitcoin, the let's reinvent um banking and commerce from first principles with no knowledge whatsoever about the um, risk management and, and approaches and why things are the way they are at all. Um, somewhat a fan of Bitcoin, the privacy currency, um, being able to make purchases without having every damn transaction tracked uh, from here to, to the NSA. Um, somewhat a fan of uh, the blockchain as a, as a 
concept as a novel structure. Um, so it's more of a, one of those things where like, I like it in theory and I hate it in practice. Interesting. So what about blockchain? I mean, I've, I've heard a few people speculate that blockchain's the future of the web or the future of technology. Do you feel like that's an up and coming thing or do you think that's going to kind of go away in the same way that Bitcoin does? No, I think there's something to blockchain in the same way that like um, when we got um, uh, private and public key encryption, like, mm-hmm. that was a serious monumental step forward in some core basic technology that has then underpinned all sorts of really interesting things since then. Um, and they weren't necessarily in their original form, right? Like the joke is that no one knows how to use PGP, but plenty of people are sending uh, encrypted messages over iMessage or other uh, or WhatsApp or whatever, other forms that use similar technology of, 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 of public and private key encryption. Um, and that was a real innovation step forward. I fully accept that blockchain perhaps could be that. Who knows? Um, at least I'm willing to let that one sort of sit out. I think there's, again, given the fact that there's this much money rushing into it right now, the hype is so deafening that it's it's very hard to decipher like um, what's actually a practical application of it and what's just like blockchain, blockchain, blockchain because we have this ten thousand dollar poster child for it in Bitcoin right now. So, anyway. so another popular question we had is uh, for me: What's your daily driver, car wise? Yep, um, <laughs> I'm a big fan of cars. Uh, cars to me is is sort of the Cars and watches have this essence of being art that's usable, which I find just fascinating and intriguing and um, interesting. And for me, um, the best daily driver I've ever had is the Porsche 911. And it, it, what I love about that, too, is not just the car, which is a wonderful sports car that's very usable in all sorts of ways. I take my son to school every morning in the back of the 911 because it's got two rear seats. Um, it's an incredibly practical proposition while at the same time also being one of the best sports cars in the world. Um, but it's also the history of the 911. So the 911 has basically evolved very, very slowly and steadily for the past uh, what is it, like 50 years now. And the history of Porsche and how they treat their legacy and how they treat um, sort of parts and the heritage and if you have a 1972 Porsche right now like you can you can fix that right you you can restore that to its former glory and it can still run and the fact that a company can trace its lineage and its heritage all the way back and can celebrate it is such a wonderful antidote to technology if you look at most software companies today not only do they not celebrate their heritage, they're throwing it out the window every five minutes. If you have, um, there's probably a list somewhere of the number of software products that Google has killed just in the last five years. And I think that list would probably run several pages. Software has this ephemeral quality where people feel like it can just be thrown out and discarded at any time. And at Basecamp, we took a lot of inspiration actually from the 9-11 and from the whole approach of valuing your heritage, not just the, the 9-11, but also Leica cameras and, and other companies that's been around for a long time and have taken it upon themselves to, to consider what honor, what past products they put into the world. So the original version of Basecamp, which we have not 
sold for five years, it not only works, is 20% or more of our business. Um, and we continue to maintain it and we'll maintain it until the end of the internet, as we like to call it. Um, perhaps an even more wild example of that was in 2005, we um, launched something called Tadalist, which was a free, tiny little web app for people to use to keep personal to-do lists on. I think we shuttered that service in 2009, maybe. Do you know what? To this day, there's still about a thousand people every day that use Tadalist to keep their to-do lists. Even though we shut it off like eight years ago, we still maintain it. We still run it. We still make sure it's, it's up. We don't throw out software. We don't throw out users. We don't throw out data. And we take a great pride in valuing our heritage and making commitments to it. Um, we have people on Basecamp who've been customers since day one, literally using our software for 14 years. Um, the amount of investment that they have in that version of Basecamp, that they're not interested in changing at all, doesn't matter what new features or whiz-bang things will come out with new versions of Basecamp, is considerable. And I have tremendous respect for that customer group. There's such a focus on newness and neomania in software industry that, yeah, of course every user is interested in upgrading every five minutes and changing their entire workflow around <laughs> and migrating their data in lossy ways and all these other things, right? It's because technologies are in love with newness. And I am too, to some extent. Um, most people are not, right? Like most people are not thinking like, oh my God, this is what a wonderful day. There's a new version of the software out that requires me to change everything and block out two days on my calendar so that I can migrate over something I didn't even consider to be a problem. No, that's not how most people think, right? And I think that that is a very sane way actually about thinking about technology. I wish I thought about technology more like that sometimes, that I wasn't like, oh, there's a new beta out. Let me install everything and blow away my day just so I can play with something for five minutes while I clean up for the next five hours. Um, so we try to be sort of considerate about that and, and keep software around for, for a long time. Um, so I, I look for these traces in other products whether it's in cars, watches is another wonderful thing. Um, I've liked watches for a long time, but it, it took Jason Fried, my business partner, to get into vintage watches. And vintage watches is just, this is something you can carry on your wrist. Like right now on my wrist is a, um, a Rolex Daytona from uh, 1974. 1974, it's full of tiny little parts and it still goes. And in 1974, I think the list price on this thing was $600. And it, to me, it's just fascinating that you can have this piece of mechanical history. And it can still tell time. Not only can it still tell time, it's one of the best ways of telling time. It's a wonderfully comfortable watch to wear. It's a windable thing. It doesn't need batteries. It doesn't need software upgrades. It doesn't have notifications. It doesn't have any of the crap that we are jamming into watches these days, right? And it's just, I love these reminders. I love these reminders, the Leica camera, Rolex Daytona, a Porsche 911, to feed into my thoughts about software and its longevity and, and so forth. And the honor there is in, in sticking with the things you have and making them work over the long term, which is in part, I think, why it I mean, mirrors my career, right? Uh, so I've been working on Ruby and Rails for the last 15 years. And as far as things are looking right now, I, I'm also a big believer in sort of the um, Nassim Taleb has this this notion of what's a good book? How do you know a book good, a 
book is good, well, it's old. If a book has lasted 30 years and it's still in print and you still buy it, there's a good chance it's going to be a good book 30 years from now. So I use the same heuristic and apply it to the fact that there's a good chance I'll still be working with Ruby on Rails in some form, shape, whatever, in 15 years because I worked with it for 15 years so far. Um, and that hopefully this this Rolex Daytona that's 42 years old, like in 42 years from now, I, I hopefully still have it. That's a really long detour from your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you could just so say a 911, but yeah. I, I could. I, I should <laughs> <good>. <laughs> you know, that fits well with something I was wondering as well was, um, I mean, 911, I get it, and, and Rolex watches. But as far as tech, projects that you're not doing, uh, what are you seeing right now that you you find is, or the sticking around right now in tech that, that you're liking? Something you're you're keeping an eye on? Yes, that, that's a good question because I feel like I've I've seen a couple of technologies where you just go like, oh yeah, that's the that's the future. Um, the first time I tried VR, virtual reality, um, and I'm just, when I say the first time, I meant the first time of the second run, not the first time in the 1990s when I tried it that time, like the Lawnmower Man and and that kind of hype that was back then. When I tried the modern version of it, I think it was. It was the, um, what's it called? The It was not the Oculus. Anyway, one of the systems. I tried it in our office at a meetup, a couple of meetups ago, and I went like, this is so damn cool. This is totally going to be the future. And may, I mean, be the future. This might be, this is the future in five years. It's the future in 10 years, but the future it will be. Um, so I love that. Um, AR feels a little the same. Augmented reality feels a little the same way. It's, it's a little funny where in, in some ways it feels like the, technology of it like what the modern iphone or whatever can do is further ahead of the ergonomics of it like obviously it's, it has to go in glasses or in contact lenses or something else to really reap the full benefits of, of it um but that also feels like it belongs in that sort of similar category although i'm not as excited about it vr really excites me the first time i played a game in vr and i just went like this is so cool. This is so physical. I'm dodging because these arrows are coming at me. I'm standing up. I'm pulling my bow that doesn't exist back. And wow. Um, and then I press finally um, electrification of, of transportation. So I tried a Tesla late compared to everyone else. I tried one three years ago. And I, I mean, as we talked, I love cars. I, I even like engines. I like all sorts of things that go in it. And then you ride in, in a battery car for the first time and you go like within five minutes you go like yeah of course every single piece of transportation is going to be like this right and then you look into it and you go like a modern car um i think it was that same week i, I tried the tesla i had just gone to the aston martin factory and, and did a factory tour in england and they were talking about one of their cars um and i was asking him how many parts are in this car and he was like oh we have about 4500 different parts I asked the same question of the, the of the Tesla rep um, when I've tried a car. How many parts in this car? Oh, about 450. Just that right there. The order, the literal order of magnitude difference in complexity and where in the integration and so on, just seems like this is so obviously the future. Um, and I mean, that's not even withstanding all the other benefits we have of a cleaner planet and and the ease of not having to go to a gas station and, and all these other things to it, right? So those are probably the three pieces of technology, which funny enough, I have nothing to do with any of them. I don't really want anything necessarily to do. I want to be a consumer. That's what interests me, right? Like I want to be a consumer of these three pieces of technology. Um, 
And then I'll throw in a bonus one, um, smart homes. So on the one hand, I'm a huge fan of the Twitter account called the Internet of Shit. Um, everyone should follow the Internet of Shit, especially if you're a software developer. It's a fabulous Twitter account that pokes fun of all the ludicrous IoT tech and failures out there. But at the same time, I just completed a house that I've been building for seven years um, this year. And we have some smart home things in it. And like, I love to both ridicule them. Uh, like, for example, I have these um, Lutron light switches, right? Because I have some LED lights and the way apparently you have to control them is like Lutron, which is software and technology and no fucking one that's so hilarious is it, it, it's such a microcosm of, of how we sometimes take two steps forward and 40 steps backwards in technology is that um when i click the light switch to turn on the light it takes about a second and a half like there's literally a 1500 millisecond delay from me pushing the button until there's light which i find is just so wonderful as in like a hundred years ago when you they got electricity indoors and they turned on the light it had less latency than what a modern led software control <laughs> solution has I, that's just it's a wonderful reminder of how we just constantly take steps backwards in technology and how it's not a straight upward curve and how we re-enter dark ages all the time um, but it's also still fascinating because one of the, the other things I found with this was uh, we had a problem with um, with ventilation at the house. And I could totally imagine that like 10 years ago, before IoT and before advanced sensors, you had a problem with ventilation at the house and you tried to go to your builder and say like, oh, I'm feeling a little lightheaded. They'd go like, ah, just open a window. Now... I have sensors up the wazoo. I basically turned my office into a laboratory for measuring in-air quality, um, measuring particle loads and um, CO2 buildups and even tracking temperature and humidity. And not only is that a fun hobby, um, but it's also just fascinating. The level of sophistication that we can apply at, at learning about some of these things that were these fuzzy concepts before. In-air quality, for example, has been a... It's been a thing for a very long time, but it's only relatively recently that on a consumer level, you've been able to quantify exactly where things are, which led me down this whole wonderful path of figuring out, like, what is in air good quality? And if you'll excuse the detour here, I, I learned an awful lot about that, which is one of the things I'm, I'm really passionate about when it comes to productivity. There's all these productivity th hacks on getting things done, right? Or if you just get this... Um, this Pomodoro clock that'll keep you in some sort of rhythm, or if you just get this new piece of software to track all your to-dos, or if you just don't sleep, or if you just work 120 hours, there's all these ways we can hack our productivity and we can get more output, right? Rather than just thinking like, how can we make our the human body just more efficient, healthy, run better, um, and sort of sleep? I've been on that for a long time. I'm a, I love to sleep. I love to get nine hours of sleep. Uh, I treat sleep deficit as as like broken code, uh, something that needs to be fixed. Um, I've, I've come to a later realization in life that what you put into your machine also matters. So um, from foods and, and, and so on. Anyway, that led to this whole thing about the inner quality. I read some fascinating stories on um, CO2 accumulation. There's been some new research, a paper published in 2012 and 116 that track what happens to your cognitive ability when you're under CO2 load. And the studies are both fascinating and frightening. Um, 
ambient CO2 levels in sort of outside is about 400 and 450 um, particles per million. Um, when we started this process at my house and, and we figured things out, we were above 2,000. Well, you can measure these things quite precisely, right? And, and that's what the researchers, I think the most recent study was from Harvard. And what they done was basically see oh, what happens to your cognitive abilities at certain different tasks once you're at 800 ppm, 1500 ppm, above 2000. What they found was really interesting was that a bunch of low level cognitive tasks like information search and so on, no impact. You're going to basically have as much CO2 load as until you start having physical effects. Not sure we'll have above 2500 or something, you'll start getting dizzy and so on. But these subtle cognitive effects, they didn't impact these low level tasks at all. High level tasks, strategy, initiative, um, all these things we would categorize like the things that programmers need to be good at and do a lot of, they were horrendously impacted by high CO2 levels. Um, to the point where someone who was in the, the low setting, I think they measured at 600, were three times more efficient and better at solving these simulated strategy games than someone who was in a, a level of, of 2000. And I just thought like, like we keep talking about technology, oh, this is 10% faster, 15% faster. What if you could just on a human level get 3x your cognitive performance out if you just fixed your inner quality? And this is just one thing. This is just CO2s, right? There's VOCs and there's off-gassing. There's all these other things into it. But CO2 really caught my attention because it was such an easy thing and it's such an easy thing to miss, right? If you have poor ventilation in your office, you will not notice You'll just be like, oh, I'm not really on it today. I've totally had that feeling where I've been in an environment where I just said, like, oh, I'm feeling a little off today. Maybe I'm just a little tired. Maybe I didn't sleep right. And then I just end up not being productive, right? And what I realized was a lot of that can actually be tied to these things like inner quality. And we just we didn't know at all because it's one of these things like uh, uh, almost like Dunning-Kruger. You don't know how bad you're getting. You can't self-assess. That's one of the other things, which was one of the other uh, lessons I took out of reviewing sleep science was that people who were sleep deprived very quickly get very bad at self-assessment. So you cannot self-assess. So you have these problems with both with sleep and with inner quality where you can just be losing massive amounts of performance, unable to self-assess. And um, that just seems like this is the easiest thing to fix. If you want to be a better programmer, uh, sure, you should study and you should do a lot of things, but just get the sleep you're required to get, study your inner quality. Just do those two factors alone is going to be a huge advantage. Anyway, I totally forget the question again, what we started off on. <laughs> oh, future technology, what was interesting. Inner quality, I actually think, is one of those. There's a lot of really interesting research going on right now, both from the academic level. There's a lot of new consumer tools getting out that are of varying qualities. I, I reviewed one of them recently called the FUBOT, which measures inner quality. Unfortunately, it's kind of a little bit early days for the consumer grade sensors and it was a bit, but it's really fascinating what's coming up. And, um, and I hope that this gets distributed so that people are not sitting in poorly ventilated offices and losing cognitive performance that they could just have for free if they would fix their ventilation. And then get the juice spot for fresh juice. <laughs> well i'm I'm going to ces in a few weeks so i'll i'll see if i can find some of that stuff there i think I, I find it interesting yeah just the the little hacks that make a big difference all right well we're definitely at the end of our scheduled time so um uh do you have a few more minutes so we can do picks for you the listeners of ruby rogues 
Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Dave Kimura, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Uh, so in spirit of active storage, I'm going to pick Minio, which is a uh, API kind of server they can run at your home or whatever, and it mimics the S3 APIs. So it just works natively. You just throw it in there and it works just like it would on S3 or something like that. Very cool. Uh, Eric, what are your picks? Yeah, I got a couple of picks. Um, the first one is a video. Uh, it's it's a very fascinating documentary about uh, the secret of luck. And the story goes in and uh, where the small town, which is fairly, um, fairly, uh, I don't know what's the word, um, superstitious. Uh, there was a study done on them where they, they basically tricked the town into thinking there was a statue of a lucky dog in the park. And if you pet the dog, um, how does that affect your life? And it ran for three months. And at the very end, the, it, it, uh, to me, it's so fascinating to see how people who believe they have luck um, are able to pull out of that and find luck and how those who believe they don't have luck actually have bad luck. Um, fascinating, fascinating uh, documentary. The other part that or the other uh, post that I have, um, as you guys know, I, I ran Code Sponsor for four months. Um, I've shut it down or I'm in the process of shutting it down. And, and in those four months, I've learned a lot about funding open source. Um, the, uh, what I've done is I wrote up a post. It's a postmortem of, of the whole company explaining why it failed. And I guess I can't really say it failed, but why I'm shutting it down and, and really why essentially funding open source is a very complicated problem. Um, so those are the two picks that I have. All right, David Richards, what are your picks? I've got one today. It's uh, I guess it, it'll fit our uh, idea of old things. Um, this is um, On the Shortness of Life by Seneca. And I've been reading that and really enjoying just, you know, just get the most we can out of life. And, uh, you know, <laughs> we've got a finite amount of time. Let's use it. All right. Uh, I'll jump in with a couple of picks. Um, I've been playing lately with the ideas around building a pipeline for your software. And so, you know, just having tools that give you feedback uh, you know, continuous deployment, continuous integration, a lot of those things. Um, and, and I'm working on getting them set up and trying to decide the, the best ways to do that. Um, one of the tools that makes a lot of this really easy that I've been using lately is GitLab. Um, I just, I, I got tired of paying for um, private repositories on GitHub um, just to kind of park stuff that I wasn't using on a regular basis. Like some of the stuff, you know, I'm, I'm competing, committing to it. And so, you know, I'll pay for wherever it goes, but it turned out to be cheaper to just put it on a digital ocean droplet than it did to, 
um, you know, pay the fees once I got to a certain point on GitHub. So I moved everything off onto GitLab and I'm in the process of closing my GitHub account for any private repos I have. I'm still leaving my open open source stuff there, but anyway. Um, so uh, GitLab is just terrific and they have a community version. It's really easy to install. You don't have to go through a lot of the process that you usually have to for a Rails app. Um, all I had to do on Ubuntu was just install the Ubuntu package and then tell it to set it up and it does all of the things. And so I'm, I'm really liking that. And they actually have a, a continuous integration tool built into it. And so, you know, it does a lot of the stuff that GitHub does, and I'm, I'm pretty pretty darn happy with it. Um, yep. So I'm going to pick that. And I'm really looking forward to active storage, so I'm just going to do a quick shout-out for that because uh, I just set up all this stuff on Carrier Wave, and the idea of, yeah, just having one uploads model and then just saying, hey, everything that needs this points to it, that kind of thing just simplifies a lot of stuff that I just barely built and suffered through and oh gee how do I copy this thing that I stored up in the cloud because it needs to reference the same thing that I stored up in the cloud but it can't because of the way carrier wave works and anyway you, you kind of get the idea so anyway that that makes me happy so uh, uh, shout out and thanks to uh, David and team for that um, David what are your picks I will carry on from the last topic here which is about these sensors um, on co2meter.com they have this wonderful Integrated sensor, I think, is $129 that measures both your CO2 levels, your air temperature, and your humidity, and can alert if they get above certain ranges. Um, I've scattered those all over my house, and they've been extremely helpful in figuring out when do I need to open my windows and so on. Um, and then on the more IoT Internet of Shit that's not so shitty, um, a lot of I've tried a lot of Internet of Shit stuff that really is shitty and should go in the Internet of Shit account. But I've also tried a few things that are really good. And one of them is called Sensor Push. Uh, it's these little squares that measure temperature and humidity. And you can dot them around your house. You can even dot them inside uh, closets or whatever. I had a, a thing with a projector that was overheating because it was in this tight little space. I threw in a Sensor Push square. And it trends data. You can see over time. You can see when it peaks and when it goes below. It, it's really, really neat. Uh, aggregates everything through a, a nice app. Uh, no subscription required. So those have been two of my favorite sort of consumer-grade uh, uh, ways of figuring out do you have good in-air quality. Humidity is a huge thing, too. The main way that people end up with bad in-air quality is, is actually through humidity and mold and other things that come with that. Uh, and then finally, um, I'll just back up on the shortness of life. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, which is another of the great stories, uh, wrote The Meditations. It's in the same spirit as Seneca's book. And I think uh, if there's anything I've found in sort of the way to live a good life, it's been the Stoics. And Seneca and Marcus Aurelius are the two prime um, advocates there. Awesome. Now, one last thing uh, before we sign off. Um, if people want to see what you're thinking about or talking about now or what you're working on, um, you know, I know that you tweet at DHH um, and you, I don't know if you still post a like signal versus noise a blog or anything like that, but are, are there other good places to see stuff that you're working on or thinking about? Uh, the Rework those Podcast are, as well. Yep, the Rework Podcast, uh, which is just rework.fm. 
Um, and then um, signal versus noise, absolutely our blog. It's just signalvnoise.com. And, and Twitter. Twitter is certainly the most active one. Uh, tweet a lot. A lot of broad about all sorts of different things. But um, if you can stomach the, uh, the flow, then um, that's usually where I announce new things. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, thank you for coming, David. My pleasure, indeed. I love this conversation. All right. Well, we will catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. 